Welcome, HAT readers. This is Roz Mannon, and uh, unfortunately, my colleague Josh Levitsky is not available today to participate, but he's here in spirit. I want to welcome you to our second American Journal of Transplant podcast on COVID-19 and welcome our esteemed speaker, deputy editor, soon to be leaving deputy editor, Laura, Laura Dendiger. <laughs> Isikoff here today from the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati Children's. So Laura or Lara, how do you like to go by? Laura, but that's okay. Let's go ahead and get started. Yeah. So Ross, since we last talked with Josh uh, about a month ago, we've seen a mini explosion of manuscripts on COVID-19 and transplantation. And the picture is still hazy, but it's certainly becoming more clear. And with each iteration of information, we're learning more. And I think the reader should be excited about what they what they're going to be able to uh, see in the journal um, as well as outside of the journal. But really, in the journal, there's some great stuff that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to first talk about a couple of small growing size cohorts that have been appearing in the literature. So we've moved away from the case reports into cohorts. We'll talk a little bit about an article that's recognized the innate immune activation related to COVID and comparing it to one of uh, the things that we see in islet cell transplantation. And then we'll get to the question of how do we restart transplantation or how do we re-engage actively in transplantation and what should be the way we consider uh, donors uh, during this period with a great point counterpoint from uh, two groups uh, that have carefully considered this and have a fascinating uh, conversation and dialogue that I think everyone should really pay attention to. So we ready to get started? I, I'm just very excited. And um, I think our readership, you know, I know people are a little tired about COVID, but I agree with you. I think your choice of papers today is exciting. There's lots of information that's new. And at the very least, it should get people excited and interested to remember that there's a lot going on right now in the world. And we all recognize that. And it's been a very difficult few days and a, and a tough weekend. And we had our virtual meeting, which was different and lots of disruption. But I'd like people to think about this next 30 minutes as their opportunity to learn and learn from someone that has a different perspective. So let's go ahead and get started. All right. So let me start with the cohorts. I think uh, there have been several cohorts nationally in the U.S. as well as internationally that have really emerged. Uh, many of them have very similar experiences, which is quite fascinating. Uh, I'm going to start with the Swiss transplant cohort group. Uh, this is a you know national group in Switzerland that reports on their patient population, and they've done this very effectively across many different um, circumstances, especially related to infectious diseases. They uh, report on the first 21 patients, solid organ transplant patients, that uh, developed COVID-19 disease uh, in Switzerland over the last couple of months. And there, there's a nice smattering of patients. There's 10 kidney patients, five liver patients, a heart, a lung, several multi-organ multi patients as well. And um, it probably is a little bit of a biased population, given that 95% of the patients that were in the study were hospitalized. So that's probably a, a little bit of bias, but importantly, a quarter of the patients ended up in the ICU and 20% of the patients or 19% of the patients ended up intubated. 
but only two of the 21 patients actually died during the follow-up period so so far, as far as when they had published it. So that actually, you know, somewhere around 20%, that really benchmarks with several of the other studies that have also come out. So it is interesting to see the experience across different across different places. Another large study that was presented in the AST, uh, ASTS Town Hall from Marcus Barrera at the group at Columbia, uh, they reported their data in AJT that had been purported in that town hall on 90 solid organ transplant patients. Uh, half of them were kidneys, but there were 17 lungs, 13 livers, and nine hearts. They had an 18% mortality overall. Uh, this did include a significant number of patients inpatient and outpatient uh, with the whole spectrum of disease. 24% uh, of them, again, were uh, of those who were hospitalized uh, died, and 50% of the patients who made it to the ICU actually expired. And I think that that is something that we are seeing is that the spectrum of disease is broad, but the sicker you are, the higher your risk for mortality. This group actually also from Columbia has been at the epicenter of the, the New York um, outbreak. They also uh, reported Latif et al. Uh, in JAMA cardiology on 28 heart transplant patients, hmm. presumably including the five that were in the Pereira study, but adding a significant number of additional patients. And they had a 25% mortality. Mm. The manuscript there actually has a lot of detail about their presentation as well as the cardiac mm -hmm. um, manifestations in these patients. And it's definitely worth people reading and taking the time to see a more specific organ-specific assessment. I okay, think. so that's Latif in JAMA Cardiology. Okay. Correct, correct. And then one of the other studies that was in the New England Journal was the group... Uh, uh, Alkaline et al., um, also from New York, and they reported on 36 kidney transplant recipients, also with a wide spectrum of disease, but with a similar mortality of 28%. So somewhere between 20 and 30% of patients, it appears, transplant recipients who present for care and are diagnosed, predominantly those who are hospitalized, have a significant mortality rate that's much above what we're seeing in the general community. Obviously, there remains a lot for us to learn about the entire spectrum of illness because uh, clearly with the you know, limitations on testing, not every patient in every program is tested to ensure that they didn't have asymptomatic disease. And I think we're going to learn a lot in the future. And I'm looking forward to the papers that look at you know, a whole cohort of patients following them prospectively to see who was infected and not, either using PCR or later on using serology. We are seeing a couple of papers. There's a paper in the AGT that came out from UCSF that also reported on the fact that patients who receive a transplant do develop um, antibodies. So that will be another methodology for us to understand better the full penetrance of this infection in our transplant population which will give us an idea of what the pen, what the actual full spectrum of disease may be. You bring up a couple of points. One that I have a question about is, do you think our patients are just inherently more susceptible? I don't know that that's the case. I do think that they're definitely a much more monitored population. Mm -hmm. I'm you know, looking forward to seeing if the impact on 
you know, minorities and patients with underlying conditions is going to be the same in our transplant patients as it has been in several of the other communities that have been very hard hit, mm-hmm. um, like Detroit. So we look forward to seeing to seeing what that data shows and how that can instruct us on how to engage our patients to keep them safer. And I think a second point that you alluded to is in these cohort studies, it's who's in the cohort. So it's apples and oranges in the Auckland paper, New England Journal, it's hospitalized kidney transplants. I think Olivia Cates, you're gonna talk about in a little bit in another context, but her data includes some asymptomatic patients. It's who's reporting in a registry. So I think it's important for the readers to point out that you have to look at who's being reported and these mortality rates are not people, as you point out, dying at home. I think, I think we have to appreciate that there is an inherent bias in our in the literature based on who presents for care. Okay. And uh, that's something that is going to ha- take some very creative mm-hmm. um, investigation for us to understand, like I said, the penetrance of disease in our broad population over time. And there's opportunity there, which will be pretty exciting. Well, great. The next thing, the next thing I wanted to talk about was an article that as I learned a ton from because this is not my area, and hopefully you can enlighten me a little bit as well. But this is an article from P- Piemonte and Landoni from Italy. They, uh, it, it has a, it has a great title, and I have to say, it is called. COVID and islet transplantation, different twins. And which journal is this in? This is in the American Journal of Transplantation. You call me out. All right. Well, you know, it just came out. Okay. So this is, this is hot off the presses. And as are most of the things that we're talking about today on the podcast. So they talk about innate activation of the coagulation cascade and compare the event in islet cell transplantation, mm. known as IBMIR or instant blood-mediated inflammatory reaction, mm-hmm. to the phenomenon that we're seeing in COVID-19 disease, uh, which has been termed microclots or microvascular COVID-19 lung vessel obstructive thromboinflammatory syndrome. Oh, you had to mouthful, right? But you know, their perspective and understanding of the potential similarity in how these cascades are activated and progress provides potential insight into how people could think about intervening for patients with COVID-19 disease who are experiencing the microclot syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now, not every patient experiences that, but it may provide some insight into how to address that. And their they provide a really nice review and detail that is really fascinating to read. Well, I'm glad you pointed that out uh, for the readership. That was actually on the open access publication date was May 13th. So um, we'll try to guide everybody there. And I'm just looking at the paper now while we're talking about it. There's some interesting tables. I was hoping they had a nice figure with it because the that IBMIR, that, that IMR response has been a real limitation to try the islet survival. So when patients get an islet transplant, they typically inject them in humans into the liver intrahepatically. And what what investigators were finding is they could manage the adaptive, the allomune response with all our typical therapy, but they were seeing significant islet death. 
Um, and it was there was this innate immune response to a foreign body in the liver and or um, maybe the HLA or maybe the toll-like receptors and, and recognizing it as a danger signal. So it's interesting parallel that they came up with this. I, I just absolutely fascinated by it because I just did not put two and two together. And I'm always someone that's sort of revolving in my head when I'm rounding is why is this happening? Why is this person doing mm-hmm. this way? So this is pretty fascinating. And I guess um, any suggested therapies, you know, I, I rounded this past week. So everybody with COVID was on heparin and I was like, you sure about that? And, and they said, yes, microclots, Dr. Man. Microclots, so, right. So yeah, so we're learning as we go. And I think that the parallel that they draw is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly something that can, you know, augment, augment our understanding potentially in the future. Great. So the next thing I thought would be good for us to talk about is that, you know, um, as we're moving through this process, many programs now that the resource limitations have been at least managed, I won't say resolved because that's certainly not true, but at least managed, what is the process that people or what are the considerations that people are you know, using when they're thinking about re-engaging in transplantation? Mm-hmm. There is an, a nice article from France, from Muller et al. in the AJT that talks about how they approach this, which I think is a reasonable way. You know, we're seeing a lot of people who are you know, talking about this or who are publishing their local guidelines. So this is just one example of that system. And they certainly, one of the first things they considered were what were the resources that were available? ICU beds, ventilators, physical hospital staff, things like that. And then they talked very specifically about risk stratifying their list. Uh, and I think that that in, in their area was something that they could do is predominantly liver patients. Mm-hmm. They also talked about the systematic screening of donors and recipients to ensure that you reduce the risk of nosocomial infection related to either donor-derived infection or a patient mm-hmm. who comes in uh, who's asymptomatic and may may um, develop disease in the early post-transplant period, similar to what has been reported in the literature and case reports. And then also optimizing the donor and recipient matching so that the outcome can be optimal. This is a slight shift in some of how things have been allocated in the United States potentially, um, and that has to be considered. And I think that we're going to learn a lot more about this uh, Mm -hmm. as time goes on, and we're going to see a lot more people who are reporting not just what their perspective is on it, but this group actually also reported how they engaged and what their outcomes were with using this process. So as people move through the various stages, I think we're going to see a lot more reporting about what works and, and what may be less less effective. And, and great. And again, for the readership, this is a personal viewpoint online published um, this weekend, actually, May 31st, Sunday. Yeah, I told so you we're hot off the presses. We are hot off the presses this week. And Again, just for the for the for folks that kind of listen and then want to go back and you can't take notes because you're driving, just take a look on the AJT website, look under the COVID-19 and you'll see the whole subset of papers that we're talking about today. Yeah. So and that list keeps growing. And I there was no way in the podcast we could cover them all. So we kind of hit the highlights. I think the last two papers I want to talk about together. And these are uh, two papers, one uh, by Olivia Cates that you mentioned before, called uh, The Use of SARS-CoV-2 Infected Deceased Donors. Should we always, quote unquote, just say no? Hmm. 
And the other article is by Malay Shaw et al. Um, and it is also, both of these are personal viewpoints. Utilizing, utilization of deceased donors during a pandemic, an argument against using SARS-CoV-2 positive donors. So this is a little bit of a point-counterpoint. They can be read individually or they could be read in series. Um, I would suggest in series because they really um, are a dialogue about what are the um, possibilities and the risks and the benefits of considering potentially using COVID positive donors, which is a which is a a serious conversation that that the community needs to have as we're learning more about this. I'm sure you have a perspective on it, and uh, and it's. So, so I guess I guess it starts before we talk about them. Is can has can you transmit? I presume in a lung you'd be more concerned than you would a kidney. Although right. there are there are ACE two receptors, and there's been some post mortem data showing viral particles. But the question is, is do we have a sense of how risky it is, say, in a liver? Is there? I, I guess there's. I know there's ACE two in the GI tract. I don't know about the liver. Per se. Right. That's my own, you know. Yeah, so I think I think that, that is that is the question. Certainly in the Cates article, they do draw out a distinction based on the type of organ, lungs as well as small bowel, you know, because they have they had plenty of virus recover recovered from small bowel, mm -hmm. but also actually an article that was just released, and I don't remember exactly where it is, in the last uh, few days talks about um, actually uh, finding virus in the um, bowel wall, in, okay. in, in the cells in the bowel wall, and actually being able to culture virus from those tissues. So perhaps lungs and small bowels might not be on the agenda. And they discuss this in both articles, actually. Okay. Uh, but And the question is still open about kidneys. I think you mentioned the autopsy reports, uh, postmortems, and I think that that's something strongly to consider. Uh, the questions about hearts, certainly, you know, with the cardiac uh, manifestations of disease in some patients uh, are a consideration, as well as uh, the livers. So I think it's it's just a fascinating discussion that needs to happen as we move through this. Certainly, there are some people that would absolutely say we don't have a therapy for COVID nineteen that's you know reliable and we and we don't we don't have that capacity to treat it. So if we think about things like CMV. We certainly don't transplant patients with CMV into uh, from donors into recipients who don't have CMV, but we certainly do have, you know, the capacity to manage that. The same is true for influenza, mm -hmm. right? Or patients with a positive bacterial bloodstream infection at the time of right. right. So that is a little bit of a sticking point for many people, I would think, but. You know, as we move forward, these are things that people need to consider. And I thought it was a great way to initiate the conversation because we're definitely on the steep slope of the learning curve. And again, for the readership, the Olivia Cates, uh, I think, was published May. Uh, the Shaw paper was published on May 5th uh, and, the, and the Cates paper was on May the 12th. Right. So if you want to go back and look at them, unfortunately, they were a little bit discongruous in terms of the timing. And and I haven't seen any letters to the editor yet. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm waiting for those. I can't wait to, to, to hear the conversation continue. I think that this is this is a great way for us to engage and to really think carefully 
about uh, what the future might hold uh, should COVID-19 continue to be a part of our lives in the prolonged future. And, and I agree that, you know, there's a lot of questions to be asked. I think um, the week that, you know, New York was totally overwhelmed in mid-April when um, I think Dr. Tepperman showed a slide uh, yesterday at the ATC virtual on COVID and showed that in Live On New York, there were zero donors. I mean, this is a place that does like 40 donors a day, cases they're managing to have zero, and it was all because of, it wasn't, I think, necessarily a, a structural issue in terms of resources. I think they just were so overwhelmed with COVID deaths. And, you know, right now, we're, they, they, again, the UNOS policy is no. It's an absolute right. no. So, Correct. And so the, the leadership is a AST and ASTSA, AST yeah. You know, task force both have said we shouldn't be using these donors. But I, I give the team from Seattle respect for for opening the conversation that that we need to have as things move forward. Well, this was just a great opportunity to have you for your last time as deputy as departing deputy editor, and we'll have to get one of your colleagues on. Any parting words? I mean, any thoughts about therapy and vaccines? I know we didn't cover that in the AJT articles yet, but um, do you think any thoughts? So, so yes, I'm, I'm, um, I, I have a lot of thoughts and I have really enjoyed my, the opportunity to, you know, serve as a deputy editor for the last couple of years. I hope to hopefully come back after my, uh, after my uh, break uh, to take on another responsibility. Uh, but my thoughts, you know, I'm really excited to see to see how transplantation hopefully can engage in some of the treatment trials for uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, we need data in susceptible patients who are at high risk. We need to advocate for, you know, our patients and our community that uh, we can be involved. I think the same will be true when it comes to vaccine trials. There are a number of vaccine trials coming out uh, mm -hmm. in the next couple of months. And, you know, as they move through the process, it's going to be really important that transplant practitioners are, and transplant, you know, scientists are thinking about how to, you know, move our patients up the chain so that it's not, you know, many years later that we're able to try this in our patients in a controlled study. So I think that that is one of the opportunities for us is to, to really advocate to engage and have uh, transplantation be at the table. Well, great. With that, I'm going to thank you so much, Laura, for doing this. And um, we'll thank the readership. If you have questions or issues in finding these papers, again, please go to the uh, American Journal of Transplantation website. The COVID-19 articles are available just like any other journal. They're open access and we will have our next podcast in July in a few more weeks. Thank you so much. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 